Good morning, everyone. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together and study. We we pray that your Holy Spirit will be with us today as we study of you. And we pray that you will be with Antoinette and Martin as they are dealing with this illness. And we pray that you intervene and bring healing in accordance with your will. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing lesson number 13, our final lesson in the quarterly Atonement and the Cross of Christ. And the title of the lesson this week is Atonement and Universal Harmony. When I heard the title of that lesson, the first thing that went through my mind is, was the death of Christ needed for more than the salvation of mankind? Yes. Yes. And the next thing that went through my mind is, and how would you show that from the Bible? And the Bible alone, if you were dealing with other Christian friends. In Colossians and Ephesians, both, where he came to set put everything back in order, even in heaven and in earth. Okay. Is there a Bible text that would show that there was a problem outside this planet that needed dealing with? In other words, that the sin problem was more than just going on on earth. Just uh, more than just human beings involved. Well, the Revelation text, war in heaven, right? Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. His dragon and his angels fought back. Interestingly enough, when you put that together with another text in Revelation, it says uh, in Revelation 5, starting verse 11, it says, Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne of the, and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice, saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory. So are these, these intelligent beings recognizing Christ as the Lamb who was slain, and somehow connecting that with his worth to receive all these things. So somehow this text is, is, is suggesting to us that, that they are gaining value out of what Christ has done. Well, if, if the text says to bring all things together under one head, as it does in Ephesians, that would indicate that something had gone wrong in the first place. There you go. To bring all things together under one head, even under Christ Jesus. Absolutely. So there's that unifying power of the cross. Uh, the Colossians text, all things in heaven and earth reconciled to Christ at the cross. First Corinthians 4.9, Paul says that we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. Angels are, are looking into this process. And then this text out of Ephesians, Ephesians 6.10 and 11. It says, finally be strong in the Lord in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against authorities and against powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. So there's really something going on beyond, beyond just human beings in this process. Doesn't Christ himself say, if I, I, if I'm lifted up, will draw all unto me? Yeah, it's a beautiful text. We're going to use that in just a few minutes. We're going to look at that. So if Christ is going to draw all unto him, why was it necessary? What was the purpose? What did the angelic forces, the unfallen beings, need, need from the cross? Did they need forgiveness of sins? They need, they need transformation of heart and character? Did they need, what did they need? Solid proof of Christ's character. Okay, more complete understanding of God's character and a more complete understanding of Satan's, Satan's character, too. Isn't that true? Yeah, both of those. Um, do we see any biblical evidence going on on this earth from the Bible 
in which Satan and his angels are battling against loyal heavenly beings. And Satan is still trying, at least up until the cross, to try and deceive heavenly beings. How about Job, the first chapter? What's going on in the first chapter of Job? Council of all the... All the sons of God had gathered. And it says that uh, Satan had come walking from to and fro on the earth, and he starts his argument with God in front of all the onlooking universe there. Uh, alleging and implying that, that God's a, God bribes people and manipulates people and, and God isn't somebody who really plays by the rules and isn't fair and can't be trusted. So, so do you think he's working in that scenario to try and, and, and gain sympathy amongst these sons of God who had gathered around the throne? Yeah? What's fascinating is Daniel chapter 10 in this concept of, of a spiritual warfare going on between angelic beings on this earth. We're going to read through most of the chapter here. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At the time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice foods, no meat, no wine touched my lips, and I used no lotion at all until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing at the bank of the great river Tigris, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of the finest gold around his waist. His body was like chrysolite. His face was like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs uh, like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. This is pretty impressive, isn't it? Yeah. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and I, as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face on the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you are highly esteemed. Consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up, for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. He said, do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. When, when was his words heard? Immediately. And that was three weeks ago. Remember, 20, uh, 21 days earlier, he'd been fasting and praying for 21 days. So three weeks ago, his words were heard instantly. But notice, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom, or the prince of Persia, resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Okay, I've got the king of Persia, got the prince of Persia, got Michael, got this being talking to Daniel. Now I've come to explain to you what will happen and to your people in the future for the vision concerns the time yet to come. And down at verse 20. So he said, do not, do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. Now what's, what's going on here? Who's this prince of Persia? Well, who's the king of Persia? Cyrus. Cyrus. The text tells us Cyrus is the king of Persia. He's a human being, the king of Persia. The prince of Persia that resisted. So, this being talking to, to Daniel is an angel. Right? Okay? It's an angel. And this angel's being resisted by somebody he refers to as the prince of Persia. Now, who is the prince of this world, according to the Bible? John 12, 31, 14, 30, and 16, 11 all describe Satan as the prince of the world. Is the prince of Persia greater or lesser than the prince of the world? Lesser. 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 So if Satan's the prince of the world, then who would the prince of Persia be? 
One of his minions. One of his minions. One of Satan, one of the angels that left heaven with Satan. See, it's not a human. It's not a good angel. It's not Christ. It's not Satan. So who's left? One of the fallen angels that left heaven with Satan. So we have the Prince of Persia. And who would the Prince of Greece be? Another one. You see, you remember our text that we just read, about, read a moment ago from Ephesians. Our struggles are against rulers, authorities, powers. So in the dark world, they have lines of authority. They have some that rule over others. Hierarchy, it seems, it would, the Bible would imply. So, what do you think this type of warfare is? Mind. What do you think it means that, uh, that no one supports this angel, this good angel, against these two evil angels except Michael? It says, no one supports me except Michael. Didn't it say that? Not even the rest of the heavenly host. Do you think that the rest of the angels are in heaven, like just idly watching and doing nothing? Well, it says in Hebrews 1.14, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So are all the angels idle, or are they working for us? Well, then why weren't any there helping, uh, helping this angel with the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece? Is there anything that says that he needs help? Yes. He says, I couldn't prevail until Michael came. And then when Michael came, I was able to break through. But until Michael came, the prince of Persia was holding me back. Well, that's the angel speaking, not yeah. Christ. Right. That's the angel speaking. So he, the, his question was, was there anything that would imply that this angel needed help? Yes. Yeah, he couldn't yes. get there for three weeks. He was held back for three weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Did it have to do with Daniel's mindset at all? Have to do with Daniel's mindset. Like, where is this battle going? Is it... I don't know. I'm just kind of confused. Well, that's, that's, that's why I'm asking these questions. What version are you reading from? Uh, it doesn't really matter. Pick one. <laughs> well, the other versions do not say exactly the same thing. Pick a version and read it. Yeah, New American Standard. Which chapter, which verse? Uh, 10, 13. Okay, read it. Actually, read verse 21. That's, that's the verse we're looking at. 13 that tells you about him being left there. Okay, so, so read verse 13. Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. What the sentence before that? But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings of Persia. It implies that he had a group of people, or a group of beings, and that then he was... You're continuing on a, a process that had already been begun. I'm not following you. I didn't see a group of beings there. Okay. Came to help me, for I had been left there with the kings. You know, when I am with a group of people and, so, and they leave me... Yeah, but those kings are human beings. If it's kings, the difference the text is making is between the prince and the king, and it said in the first verse that the king is Cyrus. So what might it mean then that only Michael is able to help him? Some suggest, some people that read this suggest that the other angels, the good angels, are, are in their own battles with evil angels around the planet. They've got their own warfare going on, and there, there weren't any left over. That's what some suggest. I, I, I don't know that I'm buying that. I, I, think, I think more than likely. My thoughts on this are that there are levels of angelic skill in their warfare, and their ability to wage war, 
and there's hierarchies and authorities and abilities to be successful. And uh, Lucifer was the most skilled. And uh, and who has to do battle with Lucifer directly? Michael. Michael. Christ. Yeah. Scripture delineate the angels who excel in strength. Exactly. So I, I'm of the opinion that that this is uh, these these princes are the highest, most powerful uh, angelic beings that Satan has at his disposal, and not just any uh, heavenly beings able to do war with them. But let's push on what kind of war we're talking about. And well, here's the text. Now is judgment of this world. John 12:31 and 32. Jesus speaking. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, but I, when I am lifted up, will draw all unto me. Some versions actually have all men, but the, the word men is, is supplied. So what does the cross here have to do with driving out the prince of this world, and I would suggest driving out the other princes, the princes of Persia, the princes of Greece, and, and all the all the satanic forces are driven out when, when the prince of the world is driven out, yeah? Okay, so w- what does the cross have to do with that? Driven out from where? The hearts of men. Is that the only place he's driven out from? Yeah. I think we first have to define the war and what kind of war and what kind of fight they're fighting. Because it's not wars like we have here. And there's parts where it says it's principalities and powers where they talk and discuss. And that's a type of war, I believe. Okay, so in Revelation chapter 12, where it says that there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. The word war in the Greek is polemo, which we get politics from. So as you're saying, it's a word of war. It's a war of words. It's a political war. It's a it's a war to influence thoughts, minds. Correct. And the cross was to clarify and justify. So to clarify, justify, reveal the truth, set minds free. This is now is the time for judgment of this on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out, driven out from the minds of intelligent beings. Intelligent beings. Also uh, in Revelation, it says. Uh, rejoice, you heavens, uh, but woe to the earth, because the devil has come down to you. Yes. Does that mean that in heaven, the decisions had been made, that, that, that all doubt was removed at Calvary, and, then, and now Satan was restricted to only the earth? Why was Satan restricted only to the earth after Calvary? Nobody else listened to him. No other being in the universe would listen to anything he had to say. There was no sympathy. There was no minds. It was like, talk to the hand. Okay? Nobody else was going to listen to him. Prior to the cross, we see in the book of Job, he was able to present himself and present his case. And the intelligent beings were listening in and, and giving ear to what he has to say. Not necessarily believing, but giving him an opportunity to present his case. But after the cross, the evidence was so clearly revealed to the onlooking universe that he was cast out. Cast out of their hearts, cast out of their sympathy, cast out of their affections. Remember who Lucifer was before his rebellion. He was friends with these beings. He was, he was a light bearer. He, he, was, he was someone they loved and, and someone they cared for. I mean, think about what it would take in your own family, somebody, somebody like your own brother, sister, or mother, or own child. How, what, what would it take to get you to cast them out? It wouldn't be just because of an initial disagreement. It would take an overwhelming amount of evidence for you to finally close all heart, mind, and, and ear to anything that person had to say, wouldn't it? Well, that's what, what it took. It took Christ on the cross for them to finally recognize, hey, there's nothing good that this being has to say. He's cast out. But is he cast out of all the hearts and minds of us? 
No. 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 There's, there's still work to do for us. Uh, there's still that warfare going on that we see. So we can have a biblical basis. And the reason I stopped and went through these texts is because when we talk to our Christian friends, we should be able to, to pull these texts from Scripture and show that, that there's something bigger than just you and me. Most of Christianity is very self-centered. Well, it's because our human hearts and sinners self-centered. But the, the whole plan of salvation is focused on saving us. It's about us. We put ourselves at the center all the time. But really what's at the center is, is God and his trustworthiness. And, and when that was called into question, it rippled through the entire universe, not just on this planet. Isn't that true? Yeah. So that's great. That's really good. Okay. And then the text in Colossians you quoted earlier, Colossians 1, 19 and 20, For God was pleased to have the fullness dwell in him, that's Christ, and through him reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so we see that the cross is intimately involved in reconciling the heavenly beings to their eternal loyalty. So Sunday's lesson, somebody read the first paragraph and starts the restoration. The restoration of God's creation to its original condition, once free from sin and uncleanness, was represented in the Day of Atonement ritual. On that day, the high priest came closer to the presence of God than on any other day of the year. The daily cleansing of the people that day reached its consummation and therefore pointed to the time when the whole universe would be free from sin. Thoughts about that paragraph? Well, I believe the statement, the restoration of God's creation to its original design is absolutely right. Isn't that God's goal? Isn't he working to restore his creation back to his original design? That's, that's a great statement. Um, and if that is correct, if his work... His work on the Day of Atonement is to, to bring his creation back to its original design. Then where must he be working? Or where must this work be taking place? The beings that are out of harmony. In the beings who are out of harmony. Isn't that right? In his creation. He must be working in his creation. Read the last paragraph, the cleansing. The cleansing power of the sacrifice of Christ has also a future expression represented in the cleansing ritual performed by the Levitical high priest during the Day of Atonement in the earthly sanctuary. In fact, Christ's work of meditation or mediation reaches its climax in its cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary, which is his work of judgment. By referring to the cleansing of the heavenly sanctuary, Hebrews points back to the cleansing effectiveness of the sacrifice of Christ while pointing forward to its ultimate completion in the experience of his faithful people at the second coming. This cleansing also looks forward to the establishment of the kingdom of God when all the enemies of Christ, who have already been defeated, will be made his footstool. This cleansing will result in an executive judgment that will consume the enemies of God, an act that will be the final cleansing of the universe from the presence of sin and evil. Thoughts about this paragraph? What do you understand this to be going on here in heaven, this this uh, cleansing in heaven going on, it talks about the, the, the uh, Levitical high priesthood during the Day of Atonement, cleansing the earthly, Christ mediation in heaven, and all these things. What do you understand that to be? Well, where does, let me ask this question, where does much of our current understanding as an as a organized church come from on this subject? Does it come from insights that have been discovered in the last 50 to 75 years? Or are they perspectives which have been taught undiscovered more than 120 years ago. Just because it's been taught for a long time doesn't mean it's incorrect, but isn't it true that truth is unfolding with time? Yes. Isn't that true? And are we not to advance in the truth? Should not our appreciation and comprehension and insight of these things grow over time? 
Are we doing that, or is our understanding on this particular topic stagnant? What would you say about a physician who was using the same knowledge base and understanding from 120 years ago? Or a dentist, or a contractor, or a plumber, or a phys physicist, or a mathematician, if they were operating on the exact same knowledge from 120 years ago? Opinion. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't we say that there's a problem there? Don't we see knowledge increasing? And isn't there a Bible promise that actually promises that knowledge will increase, biblical knowledge will increase as time unfolds, especially at the end of time? Daniel 12.4, but Daniel shut up the words and sealed the book until the end of time. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Are we seeing in our doctrine, in our understanding of this particular uh, subject matter, an unfolding and increasing knowledge base? Are we seeing it? No. Or have we in our church seen a stagnation? I think we're holding to discoveries that are over 100 years old. Insights that are 100 years old. And this is the history of the Reformation. Look at the history of the Reformation. A reformer comes along, a Bible student, inspired by the Holy Spirit, sees truth. Reformation comes, and then that reformer dies. And what happens? Stagnation. They form a church around them, but there's no more further advancement in that group. And then another Bible student comes along, a reformer, more truth, and there's more advancement, and he dies, and then there's stagnation. And you see, this is how a lot of the denominations came to be. And are we as a church in danger of doing this? Are we in danger of refusing to follow the unfolding truth and instead suck in the past? Well, early church fathers recognized that by naming the paper they first published as present truth. Yes, present truth. We're supposed to be advancing in present truth. And I'm going to suggest on this subject matter, we haven't moved in 120 years at least. It's time to move. One of the founders of our church, who was intimately involved in crafting the still current position, said after the Sanctuary Doctrine was founded, wrote these words in the book Christ Object Lessons, page 133. The significance of the Jewish economy is not yet fully comprehended. Truths vast and profound are shouted forth in its rites and symbols. The gospel is the key that unlocks its mysteries. Through a knowledge of the plan of redemption, its truths are to be open to the understanding. Far more than we do, it is our privilege to understand these wonderful themes. I mean, one of the people who was involved 120 years ago, founding the structural doctrinal belief on this, in 1900, after that was already being taught, said, hey, we got a lot of way, we got a long ways to go. There's a lot we don't understand. We need to be pressing forward. Have we done that? Should we dig deeper? Absolutely. Yeah. So, and notice the key. The key to understanding all that Old Testament symbol, symbolism is the gospel of Jesus Christ. But if you notice, much of what happens when people study this doctrine is they go to the Old Testament symbols... And then they force Christ to conform to their interpretation of the Old Testament symbols rather than looking to Christ to understand the meaning of the Old Testament symbols. You see, they're looking, it's got it backwards. So if we want to understand the Old Testament symbols and what all that stuff represents, we need to first understand the gospel. It's the key that unlocks the mysteries. So, if you think about the second coming, because this day of atonement, this day of bringing all things into reconciliation, this work of whatever is happening up there, is, is, is what immediately precedes his return. So, what are the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit waiting on? Why are they not yet here? Why have they not returned? Is there some legal battle going on in the courtroom in heaven which is preventing them from completing their work and returning? Is, is the devil such a good prosecuting attorney that they, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, have been unable 
to finish the cases and come. No, no, it's we ourselves that are yes. holding that. Bible text, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone come to repentance. So the slow up is not in some court scene in heaven. Where's the slow up? Hmm. So he's waiting for a people to get well, for his children on earth to accept his remedy and be healed. For us to open the doors of the Spirit Temple, the doors of the Spirit Temple to the Holy Spirit, so He can cleanse us and prepare us for translation. Does God need a heavenly court scene in order for Him to hear evidence and figure out who should be saved and who should be lost? Have you ever heard it presented that way? Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't really make sense, does it? Hmm. Then what's going on? Well, Daniel 8.14, one of the texts cited in our lesson, unto 2300 days in the sanctuary be cleansed. That's how you've mostly heard it, yes? Well, the word cleansed also means and can be interpreted, reconsecrated, set right, justified, put back right, restored to its right state. So, unto 2300 days in the sanctuary will be set right, or the sanctuary will be restored to its right state. Do you think, when you read it like this, that what this is referring to, it would be 2,300 days, 2,300 years, until a refurbishing project in heaven undergoes rebuilding and refurbishing the building in heaven? I'm not trying to make fun, but when we think of this text, aren't we often thinking of a cleansing work in a building in heaven? Is that what's happening? Hmm. Or is it referring to cleansing the hearts and minds of God's people, the spirit temple? Well, Tim, not only do we think of it as the cleansing of a building or sanctuary, we think of it as the cleansing of the books. Yes. And uh, and then we think about sin as being all these acts. But um, if you think about it then as the cleansing of the hearts and minds of people and the sanctuary representing ourselves or people, then it makes a lot more sense, that paragraph that I read. So that... I, I really don't have a problem with that paragraph if indeed their, um, their sanctuary and the cleansing means cleansing our hearts and minds. Set nicely, if you think about it in that way. Yes, I, I agree. That, that, I think that's what's going on. Let's deconstruct the biblical evidence and then build our case that this is what the true message is and that the message we should be taking to the world. It's not about a, a mystical process going on in a building in heaven, but it's about a, a regenerating of the hearts and minds of God's people on earth. Again, one of the people involved in crafting our current organized Seventh-day Adventist church doctrine on the sanctuary wrote in Great Controversy 426, The coming of Christ as our high priest to the most holy place for the cleansing of the sanctuary brought to view in Daniel 4, 8.14 the coming of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days as presented in Daniel 7.13, and the coming of the Lord to his temple foretold by Malachi 3, 1-3, are descriptions of the same event. And this is also represented by the coming of the bridegroom to the marriage described by Christ in the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25. So, here we have, according to one of the people involved in forming our organized church belief on this, on this particular doctrine, four texts referring to the same thing. Do we bring all four of those texts to bear in our current understanding of this? Well, let's look at what the lesson cites. The lesson cites the Daniel 7 text, 7, 9, 10, 22, and well, the 7, 13 text is talking about the same event. So let's look at that. And I want you to just try to step back 
unbias your minds, try to, try to, if you can, sweep away any preconceived ideas you think this might mean, and just envision what's being described here, and then try to draw a conclusion of what is happening. And I'm going to read to you verses 9, 10, and 13, and 14. It says, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. In my vision at night I, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, as you just hear that, what do you envision happening? judgment. Really? See, we have been so preconditioned to hear this when the court was seated and the book was open. We hear courtroom instead of a royal court. Was this a courtroom seat or was this a royal court being seated? It's, and does it make a difference? Behind me says coronation. That's, That's exactly what it is. This is a coronation. This is a crowning. This is an investment of authority and power. God sat on his throne. The court. The royal court of heaven was seated. That's not how it's interpreted. Why? The judicial court. But why? Then why has everybody interpreted it wrong? <laughs> because the, they got the books being opened. What does that mean? The books being opened. Yes. Does it say in the text anywhere about people being judged out of these books? Do you read that? In, do you see it in the text anywhere? No. Mine says the court sat in judgment. Right. Yeah. Which version? English standard. And you know, that's an interpretation. And if you go back and read the different versions, they all don't say that. So people read in, in the translation, what kind of a court. See, they read court, they read judicial court. Now, maybe it's because the, the book Daniel, what's the name Daniel mean? Judge. So maybe they say, okay, this is the book of judgment. But I don't see it directly in the text. What transpired after the court was seated? What's described? The crown. Christ is coronated. Isn't that what happens? Or did I make that up? It's a coronation. It's a crowning. It's an investment with authority and power. Let's, let's push on and see if we can find more biblical evidence to support this. By the way, the books don't really tell you what they are. Could it possibly be, and I'm just hypo hypothesizing here, could it possibly be the books that were opened were the books of Christ's achievement? the book of his accomplishments, the book of what he has, has done that documents historically his right to be crowned. Might it even have been the Bible? If you just keep reading in Daniel 7, right after the coronation, we're taken back and told of an evil power that arises in a war against the saints until something happens. And we're told in verse 22 what happens. The lesson authors would have us believe that this evil power wars against the saints until God pronounces a judgment in our favor, until a judicial act, until a legal pronouncement occurs. Because in, in verse 21 and 22, it reads this way, And I watched this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. 
Well, that's pretty black and white, isn't it? Elsewhere, Christ says, I don't judge you. It's by the words that you speak and the deeds that you do. That's what judges you. And he just pronounces whatever you've decided, let it be. That's a powerful text. We're going to bring that in to our understanding here because we want to add all those texts in. But in this text right now, let's just look at this text in its own merit and then bring those others in because we're going to bring those others in. Is this a judicial act? Or is this something else going on? Well, first, there's a war waging. It says it right in the text. Waging war against the saints. It was already brought up a moment ago that the war is a war of what? What kind of war is this? For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. This is a war being fought for our minds. He's waging war. Whatever this horn power is, waging war in the minds. And was defeating, defeating the saints. The saints are losing. Their minds are being overcome until something happens. The Ancient of Days pronounces a judgment, a legal act, or, well, one more text first. This is out of 2 Thessalonians, and it says... Concerning the coming of the Lord, being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy report or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the, Lord, uh, the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. This is describing the same thing, isn't it? Which temple? After Christ died, after he ascended victoriously, after he went back to heaven, did this man of lawlessness ride up into heaven, throw God off his throne, and sit down in the heavenly temple, proclaiming himself to be God in heaven? Is that what happened? This is the spirit temple. And so this is the same thing that we're talking about in Daniel chapter 7. The horn was waging war against the saints, this war in our minds, defeating the saints, setting himself up in the minds of the saints, proclaiming himself to be God in the minds of the saints, until the Ancient of Days, according to this version, pronounces a, a legal act or a judgment. No, it's not until. It's until something else happens, until the Ancient of Days invests us with judgment, that we can discern the right from the wrong. How do we know? Well, read the King James. Anybody have a King James? Well, here's the King James. Daniel 7.22. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. And the word in the Hebrew that the NIV translates as pronounced actually means to give or to impart. Until judgment was given to us. Until judgment was imparted to us. Daniel's told in a vision that evil power would arise and would oppose God and would lie and distort and misrepresent God and defile the spirit temple by getting humans to accept, worship, and teach false pictures of God. That this power would, would reign strong for 2,300 years until enough truth would be recovered for Christ to empower his people on earth with judgment to break free from the lies and be cleansed in their minds and character. In Daniel 7, we see symbolically taught that Jesus comes to his Father and is empowered to go forward with all the agencies of heaven to enlighten, cleanse, and purify his people on earth. This evil power was able to uh, succeed against the saints until we are given judgment or discernment or ability to see through the lies 
that have blinded our minds, and thus our minds are cleansed. And we read that other text pertaining and describing the same event, Malachi 3, 1 through 3. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can adore the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? He will be like a refiner's fire, a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Who in the same event, remember all these texts, same event. Who's, what's being cleansed here? The people. The, the, the priesthood of believers, the Levites, our minds are being cleansed. See, we are living in a time in earth's history where Christ is working to cleanse our minds, hearts, characters from all the lies, distortions, misrepresentations of God. This wins us to trust, and in trust we open the heart, the spirit is poured out, we are transformed. This has always been a battle for our minds and hearts. What do you think about this understanding of this message? Is there a biblical base for it? I see a lot of questions. So let's ask questions. Then you're saying there is no judgment. Let's see if I can get those judgment texts. Daniel 7.26 says, The court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away. Which to me sounds like we will judge Satan, or the court will judge Satan, and his dominion will be taken away. Yes, let's go to Tuesday's lesson. What's going on during the thousand years? Somebody read the second paragraph. Pause. I'm sorry. There's one of the texts we had to look at on this issue of judgment and, what's, and, and facing judgment in Monday's lesson. Cites Hebrews 9, 27 and 28, which reads, Just as man is destined to die once, and after that face judgment... So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Well, that's pretty plain, isn't it? Except. Except. Good, good, good. There's an exception, yes. Judgment is used here several different ways. One is the executive or the result of a prior mental judgment. In other words, the executive. In other words, if I am a executioner, I hate to use that term because we're, this is often direction, but um, if I'm the person who is giving judgment, I may be giving, quote, punishment or reward or whatever. So that is judgment in the Bible as well. It's not just, you know, there's several different ways the word judgment is used in these texts. In the Hebrews text, what do you think Paul means? Just as man is destined, destined, is a key word, destined to die once and after that face judgment. What do you think he's talking about? Our destiny. That's, that's results of what we've, we've done. Oh, okay. See, our destiny. We're terminal. Okay, say that. We're destined to die. Okay. We're in a terminal, or a terminal condition. Or well, see, he's contrasting our destiny here in the first half of this passage to what Christ has done to take away sinfulness or sin so that we can be saved. So we have the, our destiny on one hand without Christ, and we have what Christ has done for us, on the other hand. So what's our destiny without Christ? <laughs> to die once, which is the, the sleep death, and then face... Well, this, says, this translation says judgment, but what do we understand happens ultimately to um, the wicked in the end? They, they die the sleep death, but what's the ultimate destiny of the unrepentant? The second death. Eternal death, which could we say separation from God? Eternal separation? Well, interestingly enough, the Greek in the text 
translated judgment, face judgment, actually can also mean experience separation. So we are destined to die once and experience separation. Isn't that our destiny? Without Christ. And he says, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away our sinfulness, and he will appear a second time, not to bear some, but to salvation. So what he's saying is, our destiny is, without Christ, to die that first death, and then, if it wasn't for him, be eternally gone, separate from, separate from God. But Christ came to resolve our sin sickness, to resolve sinfulness that causes our separation from God, so as to reconcile us to God, take away our sinfulness, that we can be saved. Hey, Tim. Yeah. Um, my Good News version says in uh, Hebrews nine twenty eight, in the same manner Christ also was offered in sacrifice once to take away the sins of many, of course implying the cross, and he will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are waiting for him. Exactly. So now we can go on to that paragraph in Tuesday's lesson. We're still talking this question of, is there no judgment? Okay, so the Hebrews text, you, you can see how you can build a very judicial, forensic, legal case. You can read into these texts that stuff, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's actually there. Go ahead, the millennium passage there. The millennium indicates that at the second coming, the cosmos is not yet ready for the annihilation of unrepentant sinners, of Satan and of his fallen angels. The extinction of a fragment of God's intelligent creation must take place at the appropriate moment when it will result in the healing of the universe and the restoration of perfect harmony. Otherwise, the result could be fragmentation deeper than the one that Satan caused. The millennium provides the need needed time to create universal support for God's solution to the great controversy. It says, of all the beings in the universe, who wouldn't be ready for the final annihilation of the unrepentant except maybe the unrepentant themselves? Besides them, who else in the universe might not be ready at the second coming for the final annihilation of the wicked? We are not we, we, the saved. The saved. Loved ones who are not in heaven you, you, may not understand why. But the, the lesson didn't make that clear. Right. It says like it's implying that the rest of the universe might like not be ready. The only people in the universe not ready for the final annihilation of the wicked at Christ comes is the saved from earth. Isn't that right? Which means who's going to be doing that growing or changing during that thousand years. We will. The thousand years is a time for us to change, us to mature, us to grow, us to develop. Isn't that what it's for? So are we getting ready to, to let those that cho did not choose God to let them go? What do you think? Are we preparing our hearts and minds to be at peace with the choice of our loved ones who refuse reconciliation? The description of the New Jerusalem includes the tree of life whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. That's not stated what it is, but there is some healing, maturation or whatever, that is going on, even in the new, the city made new. When Christ appears the second time in the clouds of glory to take the saints to heaven before, at the beginning of the thousand years, will there be anybody on earth who at that moment knows 100% correctly everything in the Bible? No. 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 Doesn't that mean that there'll be a lot of learning yes. mm -hmm. going on? Did the thief on the cross have a lot to learn? Yeah. Do each of us still have a lot to learn? Yeah. What is the implication of the lesson that the thousand years is for? Judging. What's the traditional view taught in our church the thousand years? What are, judging what? the wicked. Judging the wicked. Not only that, what else are we doing after we make judgment? We're what? 
Sentence. Pronouncing sentences. We're meeting out how many minutes, seconds, and hours, and days they have to suffer in the flames. We are pronouncing judgment and handing out penalties. That's what's traditionally taught. And we're rejoicing about it. Yeah. <laughs> what do you all think about that? Can you find some biblical evidence for the idea that the saints sit up in heaven meeting out punishment upon those who are lost? Who wants to be on that committee? Yeah. Okay, we're going to have a nominating committee here, and we're going to nominate those who are going to sit on the punishment team. <laughs> I mean... No! Yes? If Christ, though he was perfect as a child, had to develop character while he was on earth, it's no surprise to me that it's going to take us at least a thousand years to begin to get it. Could it be that the idea of judgment during this time, because the Bible does make it clear that we sit on thrones with Christ. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes, implying that the appointed time for judgment is, is when the Lord comes. Somebody read 1 Corinthians 6, 3. Don't you know that we will judge angels, not to mention things in this life? And Revelation 24. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So authority to judge, uh, reigning with Christ a thousand years. Don't you know that you will judge angels? So what do we take these texts to mean? The traditional view. It's a judicial system. We are weighing the evidences in a court of law. We are handing out penalties appropriate to the crimes committed, that all justice can be served, and inflictions of due process and all this other stuff. Is that what this is described? Is it, or are we reading a lot into it when we draw those conclusions? Can there be other legitimate understanding of these texts? Can you think of any? In light of what we've been discussing here today, well, I think we are certainly weighing evidences of um, of character, but it's not for the purpose of meeting out, meeting out punishment. It's, it's for our our enlightenment, our understanding, our growth and development, and our healing. Okay, so judgment can mean, as you said earlier, Wendell, it can mean an, a judicial act where passing judgment on someone, but can't judgment also mean a an ability that we gain. We gain judgment. We come to conclusions, insight, discernment, wisdom. We have the ability to, or the authority to judge the rightfulness and the wrongfulness, the reasons why this is happening, the reasons why that is happening. We, we are able to judge rightly now why those who are lost are lost and what God's role was in that. Would you call that more discernment? Well, it says, uh, Revelation 14, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of? And we all know that means the hour that he sits up there and pass out edicts, handing down penalties to those who are lost. Or does it mean the hour that he is being judged? That he is being judged. Ultimately, it started in the universe. The issue started over? And it's going to end over? And we're going to have to make judgments over whether we can trust God. And, and the biblical evidence, we already, we already had the, the text in Corinthians about the waging war over the knowledge of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, 
Five times they did not value the truth about God. They exchanged the knowledge of God for a lie. They preferred images with their own hands to the knowledge of God. And when that happens, the mind becomes darkened. The mind becomes futile. The mind becomes depraved. Our minds can't be healed if we're holding to lies about God. Life eternal is knowing God. The second covenant writes the laws in the hearts and minds, and no one will say to his neighbor, Know the Lord. We'll all know him. So, is it saying that this judgment that the saints get, this authority, is the ability to actually judge rightly what's going on? Yes. I think this points out one of the dangers and one of the beauties of having uh, electronic gadgets and um, books which um, have concordance. So when we go to study a topic, our natural inclination is to look up the word, then look up all the texts that have that word in it, regardless of how that word's being used. We currently are using, in this discussion, texts that mean totally different things. The word judgment, as we have just described, is being used in several different contexts, and yet we're using it all in one context. For example, the text that we just read in 1 Corinthians 6, 6, 1 through 3, is clearly a judgment factor that Paul is encouraging the church to use instead of going to the judicial courts. He's saying, you should be having a church court. You should be able to be passing out judgment and, and condemnation or rewards based on the behavior of your church members without going to the judicial courts. This one text has the word judgment in it. But that is not the same use of these other texts. And we're lumping them all together. And here, even in our discussion, we've done the same thing. We've used that, that text, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 3, to see, say that, oh, this is the same judgment that we're using somewhere else. It's not. It's being used in a totally different way. And I think... Are you sure? Yeah, I am. I'm not. Because, it, okay, 1 through 3 is talking about a judicial... I hear you. I hear you. But it's talking about it within the church. And the church is governed by what law? Love. Love. And so the judgment, rightly, of the church is the judgment of discerning the sickness of the heart of your members and intervening to redemption and healing. It's not about the legal system of the land. Don't get into that type of judgment. Use the judgment of God to bring healing and redemption. I'm not sure it's different. I'm sure, I'm sure we'd like to see it differently, but I'm not sure that it is. Paul's calling us back to a different standard. And you have to put those judgment texts in light of what he said about loving others more than yourself. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Pushing on with this judgment stuff, Matthew 12, 33-37, Christ said, make a tree good, and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word you have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Now what's he talking about here? If you read the context. Is he talking about the condition of the heart? Yes. The condition of the heart is self-determining. Those who have accepted Christ and have been healed, regenerated, renewed, transformed, have eternal life. Those who have refused Christ 
refuse the Holy Spirit, their condition is terminal. It's self-evident. If a person is terminal and refuses the remedy, that person will get sick and die by their own condition. What is it that condemns them to die? Their own thoughts. Their condition. Those watching will judge why they die. Do the unrepentant die because the doctor gets mad at their refusal to accept his treatment and then executes them? No. Or does the doctor cry as he watches his patient die? And then John 5.22, which somebody mentioned earlier, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. That was Jesus speaking. The Father judges no one. He entrusted all judgment to the Son. Was Jesus lying here? Will Jesus have to backpedal and say, Hey guys, I didn't actually mean that the Father won't judge anyone. The Father is going to judge everyone. I'm going to be there. Don't worry, because I'll be your defense attorney to protect you from his judgments. Or did Jesus mean what he said when he said the Father judges no one? All judgments given to the Son. Do we incorporate these truths into our understanding, or do we make this take our earthly judicial system and apply it to the heavenly system and see God as the great Supreme Court justice? Jesus is our attorney to defend us from his judgments. It's a lie. For God so loved the world, he gave. If God is for you, who can be against you? Jesus said, God's not going to judge. All judgment is given to me. And in John 8, 15 and 16, Jesus speaking, you judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right. Because I'm not alone, I stand with the Father. If I do judge, but I don't judge. What do you say to the woman caught in adultery? Neither do I. I'm not judging you. It's not coming from me. Your own condition, if you don't accept reconciliation and healing, will judge you by your own words. You will be justified by your own words. You'll be condemned. Any thoughts or questions about this? Do we have growth to do in our understanding of this doctrine? What God is trying to do at this end of time? The Daniel 7 text, the cleansing of the sanctuary, the, the setting us right, the healing, the restoring our minds into unity and oneness with Him. Questions? We'll be learning for all eternity. Learning for all eternity. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you haven't left us here in darkness, but you've sent your Son to reveal the truth and to win the battle over evil forces that we could never win. We pray that you will dispatch your angels to hold back the Prince of America so that we can fulfill the purpose you have for our life, that we can move forward in enlightenment, growth, and love, taking this truth to this world, because, Lord, we want to see you coming soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.